0: Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Calliner Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Calliner is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. The show is made possible by patrons like JK and Richard and Andy and Catherine, Kim, Steven, Manuel, Deborah. Nick and Grant, I appreciate all of the support. Like I said, I couldn't do it without you. They became patrons to uh, support the show, and you can, too, by visiting ThePeteCalendarShow.com. You click the link there. If you become a patron uh, of the program, you get access to exclusive content. For example, every Thursday night we do a live stream, uh, and so you get access to that as a patron. So uh, look forward to seeing you there and engaging and participating in the discussion. Uh, also want to thank Mattress Man. Today is June 30th, and so this is the last day of the month, which means it is the last day to get their 000 deal. The triple zero zero down, 0% APR, and uh, that's up to two years, and zero payments for 90 days. So think about that. You walk into any of the four locations that they have around Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, uh, and uh, or you go online to mattressmanstores.com. And you don't have to put any money down on a new mattress. And we're talking like premium mattresses. For example, the Restonic uh, Biltmore collection. Restonic makes these in Fayetteville. And these are the mattresses that the Biltmore has in their hotel and inn. And so uh, you can get quality mattresses with no money down, no APR, no, no financing costs for up to two years, and no payments for three months. Right, So if you have sagging on the sides of your mattress, for example, it's where you always sit when you uh, get in and out of bed and you tie your shoes right there. And so now there's like this big uh, sagging part on the edge of the mattress. That's a really good indication you need a new mattress. And you need Mattress Man. You need Mattress Man stores in your life. They have five-star delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee, and they ship nationwide. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better so the conventional wisdom has been that progressives are all about the uh, urbanity the 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 city life you know and the conservatives disdain it right that's the conservatives are the the country mouse and the uh the progressives are the city mice And there is some truth to that. You look at housing patterns and where people tend to live. Progressives are far more likely than conservatives to prefer the walkable, high-density communities over auto-dependent, detached-dwelling neighborhoods. Your classic single-family, four-houses-per-acre kind of suburban development, right? Not to say that progressives and liberals and Democrats don't live in these areas. They do, of course, but uh, this is sort of the conventional wisdom being expressed here by John Hood at the Carolina Journal in a piece called Progressive Politicians, hurt downtowns. See, urban areas tend to vote heavily Democrat, and rural areas tend to vote heavily Republican, even in the more competitive suburbs, right? The ones that are closest to the downtown area, sort of the, the middle ring, the original suburbs of a of a city, <laughs> when they started, you know, sprawling outwards 100 150 years ago, um, even those suburbs tilt blue. The farther away you go from the the downtown core of a city, right, the more Republican it gets. Okay, but in day-to-day life, the polarities, he says, are not so stark. For example, plenty of both conservatives and progressives work in downtown offices. They go out to eat, they go to shows downtown, they go to museums and such. They spend most nights and weekends elsewhere, though, right? And... Look, there are a lot of ways you can, you know, do your shopping and whatnot in the suburbs outside of a downtown core. But over the last twenty to thirty years, uh, and it's been like I've been watching this and covering it when I was a reporter down in Charlotte and uh, even in Asheville, cover you know, just covering and reading and watching the city council and the zoning meetings and talking to developers and such. Um, this revitalization of downtown Main Street, USA, uh, has been, I think, a really exciting thing. And a good thing. I've enjoyed it. I think a lot of people have. Um, He says, this is John Hood again. He says, we may disagree about transportation or zoning policy, but few with anything other than vitality and success, uh, sorry, few wish anything other than vitality and success for our major downtowns. And for these reasons, I have to confess, to being dismayed at how much damage progressive politicians are blithely wreaking on their downtowns in North Carolina and beyond. COVID-19 was going to be a challenge for the neo-urbanist movement, regardless of how policymakers responded. And if you don't know what neo-urbanism is, it's essentially Main Street USA. There were a couple of uh, planners and uh, architects who uh, sort of relaunched this effort in the late 90s, I want to say, uh, and it was to try to break us of what had become the status quo default zoning decisions and building proposals that were coming out, which were, you know, massive single family suburban tracts and uh, shopping centers, strip malls, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and you know, and big malls, for example. Um, and what they were saying is, no, you want to. And I've gone over these principles over the years on the radio program in various ways, but there are all sorts of things that you can do to help activate, quote unquote, public spaces, get people walking around. You know, if you uh, put front porches closer to the sidewalk, you uh, you tuck the garages uh, you know, somewhere off to the side so people can't just like pull in and, and not be seen. You do back alley access points. You do uh, square curb cuts rather than rounded curb cuts because it makes it more pedestrian friendly. Like all of these types of uh, neo-urbanism, new urbanism concepts, they, they've they really taken root in American planning circles and in you know cities over the last 20 to 30 years, <clears throat> at least that I've seen. Contrary, though, to common sense and their own interests, progressive politicians allowed the protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's death to devolve in all too many cases into rioting. They deployed city police officers poorly or not at all. Uh, They barely protected downtown businesses, if at all. They made excuses for for or sometimes even endorsed the actions of violent mobs that attacked public facilities and monuments. Now, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who owns a downtown business, a restaurant, a bar, or a condo, right? They enjoy urban living. Look, this is... John Hood is saying something that my wife and I have actually discussed ourselves. When we made the decision to leave uptown Charlotte, downtown Charlotte, we moved out of Charlotte and got a place in Asheville. And when we moved here... We went looking for places to live, and we purposefully did not move into downtown Asheville. We made a conscious decision to avoid the area. Not because we didn't like urban living. We do. like We, we enjoyed living in uptown Charlotte. It was, it was activated. It was always stuff going on. I mean, yes, it was loud and noisy, but there was always stuff going on. We made a decision. We didn't want that in Asheville because the downtown Asheville scene is not the same as the uptown Charlotte scene. And I wasn't going to invest money right? Uh, like these people who bought million dollar condos in downtown Asheville. I don't know why you would want to have to walk through protesters that hate your guts every single time you want to leave your apartment. It feels like you're being held uh, prisoner, being kept captive. But that's just my take on it. Um, but to me now, and, and Christy, like our discussion is, we don't think the juice is worth the squeeze anymore in an urban environment. It's just not. And the the nature of the COVID-19 virus, right, all of the things that are of benefit to living the urban lifestyle now become dangerous to you, right? Not to mention you have the protests that occurred and you have your local government if you're a limited government guy like myself, I don't have any representation on my local government in any downtown in major American cities. So I can't go to my, you know, friend who happens to be a city council member because they're all Democrats and I'm not. And so my voice doesn't really matter a whole lot. I get no representation on council. I can never be appointed to committees and such. So um, where do I go? I leave the city. That's what happens. I leave the city. I'll go find a smaller town someplace where I can be safer, and I know that the, lo- uh, the uh, elected officials will order law enforcement to enforce the laws, right? These are decisions that people are making. Right. So put yourself in the shoes of somebody owning a business, a restaurant, a bar, a condo, whatever, in a downtown environment. They enjoy that lifestyle. They've invested time and resources into it. They've watched as state and local governments, understandably concerned in the face of a coronavirus. Right. Shut down large swaths of that very urban life. The shopping districts, the theaters, concert venues, restaurants, the nightclub scene, all of it weeks later, then. They watch as many of these same politicians either look the other way or more appallingly seem to cheer as angry activists gather in already depopulated downtowns to engage in mischief or criminality. Would you be enthusiastic about investing more time and resources there or would you start looking for somewhere else to live and work and run a business? I can tell you what Christie and I have discussed, it's the latter. It's the latter. She works in the legal field, and so she has to kind of be near courthouses, which usually are in downtown areas. <laughs> so that's so, yeah. It like that's going to be the trade-off: is the commute. Now, I mean, I don't have much of a commute nowadays. It's basically the bedroom to the office here in the other side of the apartment. <laughs> but uh, but Christie's commute might change depending on what we decide to do now. Noah Rothman at Commentary Magazine. He says in Florida, the bars and beaches are closing down again. And in Texas, too, Um, they're imposing new prohibitions on commerce and social gatherings, even relatively strict states like California, which had only just begun to uh, loosen some of the restrictions are now reimposing limitations on social conduct. Amid a new surge of covid-19 infections in many places, many assumed had escaped the worst of the the virus's ravages, the bad old days of early March are back. But this stage of the pandemic is different. This is this is going to be critical, folks, in these next few days and weeks as the panic porn gets dialed up to an 11 by the media. This is going to be important to keep in mind, all right? This phase of the pandemic is different. New positives are rising dramatically, and that's not entirely attributable to just an increase in testing. However, hospitalizations and intubations where they have to put the tube in, you know, for the breathing, Right? They have not increased proportionately. Unlike in the early spring, the most vulnerable populations are not significantly represented in this new surge of case numbers. Okay, so everybody's going to be talking about the case numbers. Today, who those case numbers are, want to take a guess? Young people, young people who have contracted and are spreading the disease. So what's happening here? Is it the reopening that's been occurring? Is it Memorial Day? Is it the demonstrations? Uh, Maybe it's all of these things that are contributing. Rothman says there are some behaviors we know to be riskier than others— And they were all on display for several weeks in June. What's more, the demographic cohorts primarily engaging in this unsafe conduct are those now coming down with milder and therefore vastly more transmissible forms of the disease. This is another key point. Because these people are younger and the death rate for people under the age of like 50 is next to zero. So uh, young people are getting it. And it is expressing itself in such mild ways they don't have it. Look, I've been clearing my throat like every morning I wake up. It takes me like two or three hours to, you know, get through it all. Is that coronavirus? I have no idea. I got to go donate some blood. I'm due to donate blood. I got to go do it, and uh, what I think is the Community Blood Bank, I think they screen your blood for it, so maybe I'll get a free serology test like that. Oh, because by the way, CDC has some new information out on that, I'll get to in a second. It should be intuitive here, okay? It should be common sense. This is Occam's razor. The most obvious explanation is probably it. It should be obvious that leading young people into the streets to crowd each other and issue spittle-flecked screams of outrage into the air probably contributed to the virus's resurgence as much as any other social behavior of course it is intuitive and you have to labor to convince yourself otherwise unfortunately too many in our media um, they are invested in doing just that into ignoring this in some cases willfully like uh, like New York, for example, they are they are purposefully, specifically not asking people who have a positive test for COVID nineteen if they were at any demonstration. We don't want to stigmatize anybody. Whatever, whatever. You're not serious. That's what this is. this. this, this if you if you wonder why people are behaving now. In a political way, when it comes to the response, like why normal citizens look at this and think that this is all political, it's because the elites, quote unquote, the experts, they're behaving in a political fashion. I was on board with all of these, ty- all of these um, executive orders, right, because I suspected that they had more information, that they were making informed decisions, they had advisors. I don't have advisors. I'm just one man with a Google, you know, like. I don't have that kind of input that they must have had to make these decisions. But then you start seeing them act political, and it's, okay, okay, I'm not buying what you're selling anymore. Now I'm going to be very skeptical. And that's unfortunately where I am four months now into this pandemic. Black Lives Matter protests sparked COVID-19 outbreaks, according to the, oh, sorry, there's no evidence, I should say that. This is what NBC reported. There's no evidence that the Black Lives Matter protests sparked COVID-19 outbreaks. This was their report, right? Why? Because there's a National Bureau of Economic Research uh, paper that came out that uh, gave this uh, re- uh, gave this finding that there's nothing that they can find. There's no evidence yet that the wave of protests sparked the outbreaks. But they didn't tell you. NBC didn't tell you. But Noah Rothman does. The next part of that paper put out by the National Bureau of Economic Research, it says, rather, as the protests went on, people who were not participating increasingly stayed at home. Why is that important? <laughs> what, what impact do you think that had <laughs> when people were too afraid to go out because of the rioting and looting, and they were afraid they'd be attacked, they were afraid they would have their car surrounded and swarmed by a mob, dragged out of the car and beaten to death, right? When people were afraid to go outside, they stayed home. And what happened? Whatever risk of infection posed by the protests was offset, basically, by the number of people avoiding them. Right, So you had this counterbalance occur. So you're look at you looking at, oh, did this cause a spike in cases? Well, you had an offset because their activity prompted others to withdraw. He says, for three months, this is Noah Rothman again at commentarymagazine.com, for three months, the nation committed to shuttering the uh, most economic and social activity, the hardships of which fell disproportionately on minorities, young people, and low-income households. And then suddenly... The politicians and public health experts who were once the most committed enforcers of the stigma around violating social distancing guidelines, they performed an about-face. They did a 180. They not only embraced mass gatherings, but actively encouraged them. What followed, he says, was a great exhale, literally, from young people who took to the streets both to solemnly protest and to dance, to celebrate and reconnect in forms that were now socially acceptable, right? This is obvious to anyone with eyeballs and an honest perspective, right? This is quite obvious. For three months... I've talked about it that you know the governor and uh, secretary Mandy Cohen and progressives Democratic leaders they were all about the stigmatization the shaming the ridicule they called uh, you know oh if you're a church and you want to have uh, service uh, you're being reckless and you're endangering your flock and you should be a responsible leader of your people not irresponsible right. All of the language used to shame and stigmatize people who then were like, I got to open my business. I got to open my business. I'm going bankrupt. I got to feed my family. And so they open their business. And how dare you? You're killing grandma, right? That's what the mask uh, fight now is all about. And again, I wear masks out in public. I believe that they do help, even if just a little bit, if everybody is masked up, it does help reduce the spread. Now, uh, and that is the case, by the way, for any kind of airborne virus, right, for any kind of airborne virus. But this is what was going on at the initial outset was the stigmatization and shaming of people who were like, I can't stay locked down anymore and uh, we need to do something different. This isn't working. Right. And they were shamed. And then George Floyd got murdered by a cop in Minneapolis, and all of a sudden, those same people now turn around and tell the young folks who have been, you know, holed up inside their, you know, four-bedroom apartment with 17 roommates, and they're like, okay, you know what? You can go out and protest now. What do you think they're going to do? It was like a pressure release valve, right? Everybody pours out into the streets and chanting and screaming and fighting and just get out all of that anger, right? Get it all out. And then the same people that were stigmatizing and shaming everybody, not a word to be said about any of this now. No, no, no. Because it's a virtuous cause. And it's a cause that's being demonstrated uh, for by their base, right? Progressives, right? This is their base. They're not going to anger their voters, right? That's, That's the line they're walking right now. Because they control all of the major cities in America. The cities that are host... To a resurgent COVID-19 outbreak are also the scenes of the massive marches in favor of progressive social causes. Noah Rothman points out it is abundantly clear that as long as you're advocating political activity of which Democrats approve, you'll be spared the scorn and legal jeopardy to which all other Americans who flout social uh, distancing guidelines are exposed. It's a double standard. We see it. We know you see it. Everybody sees it. This is why you're not going to get everybody into a lockdown again. It's just not going to happen. Roy Cooper cannot, Governor Cooper in North Carolina cannot go backwards. He's at phase two. He paused it here. He can't go back to phase one. No one will do it. People will not do it. I mean, Democrats will fall in line because that's what they do for their leaders, right? They'll fall in line on this stuff. But business owners, small business owners who are apolitical or conservative, they're not going to do it. He's lost the consent of the governed because of the way they have behaved. California. Get this. L.A. Times headline. California's slide from coronavirus success to danger zone began on Memorial Day. (laughs) The seeds of the latest surge in coronavirus cases in California appear to have been planted around Memorial Day people had been pent up in their homes businesses shuttered for months amid stay-at-home orders and they began to reopen and as the reopening accelerated a lot of people were ready to get out but not to protest just to get out the beckon of summer rituals followed day trips to the beach memorial day barbecues graduation celebrations and father's day gatherings now around the same time historic protests did begin triggering uh, an outrage uh, triggered by an outrage over the death of George Floyd. Uh, that sparked unprecedented demonstrations across the nation including the streets of California. But it would only be a few weeks of incubation and now it's clear that the Memorial Day weekend was the beginning of California's turn from coronavirus success story to cautionary tale. A Los Angeles Times analysis has found that new coronavirus hospitalizations in California began accelerating around June 15th at a rate not seen since early April. And by the way, the protests began right about three weeks before the spike in hospitalizations. End of May. The end of May began the protests. Mm Mm-hmm. And two to three weeks later, why, look at that. We've got a surge in hospitalizations. Here's the panic porn that the media engages in. Officials and experts say the worst is still yet to come. It can take two weeks for the virus to incubate in the body and an additional week or two after that to result in the hospitalization of severely ill people. That means more people may have gotten exposed to the virus around the week of Memorial Day or shortly shortly thereafter. Um... But the behavior that is causing the rapid spread is continuing because it's the businesses, you see, who haven't adhered to the health orders. Businesses. Right. It's not the ongoing and constant demonstrations every single weekend, right? Los Angeles County announced beaches are going to be closed during the holiday weekend for July 4th in the hopes of reducing crowds. (laughs) The beaches are the problem, right? Not the demonstrations. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Use promo code Pete for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483 mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, Old grouches on main street downtown clyde across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com So the Los Angeles Times doing this big story about how the spikes in the coronavirus cases all started around probably Memorial Day weekend. And it's probably all the family barbecues and uh, dips in the pool and such. Maybe, maybe some of the demonstrations, you know, by thousands and thousands of people all over the place, maybe had some impact. But it's really hard to say. State officials say. The consumption of alcohol in bars impairs judgment, unlike in mobs. Mobs do not impair judgment and leads to a decrease in the use of face coverings, unlike being in a Uh, You know, big, hot, sweaty mob outside definitely doesn't result in people taking their face coverings off. Also, uh, being in bars uh, and drinking alcohol, uh, it it, it impairs your judgment and um, maybe keeps you from, uh, you know, being as mindful of these social spacing requirements. Unlike, again, being in a mob where everybody practices safe social distancing. These spaces are also raucous. These bars are not mobs, of course, sorry, didn't mean to confuse you, not the mobs, but the bars. The bars are raucous, often requiring people to speak in louder voices, which can lead to the spray of potentially infectious oral droplets while talking. Once again, unlike a mob, a mob, you're not required to speak loudly or scream or anything like that. So all of these risks are completely Uh, avoided in a mob versus a bar right that's really the big takeaway here is that if you're going to go out it's best to participate in a mass demonstration maybe a little bit of vandalism and rioting and looting on the side but either way that's still going to be way more safer than going to a bar because covid knows covid knows the pandemic could have triggered Uh, the sense of unifying around a common enemy in the United States. This is the L.A. Times story. Unfortunately, we've made it such that it's become very divisive and become very politicized. This is uh, Kim Farley, a former senior health official with the L.A. County and National CDC. Um, Yeah, it's too bad, right? I wonder how that happened. How, How did that happen? Oh, that's right. Orange man bad. Um, Dr. Otto Yang, he is a what is he? professor of medicine and associate chief of infectious diseases at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, uh, who thought that L.A. opened too quickly. He says, with the benefit of hindsight, it's now clear that officials should have made enforcement of social spacing and masking a higher priority. Earlier implementation of a mask wearing order would have helped, too. At this point, Yang said, he does not think the public would tolerate a return to the springtime stay-at-home orders. So, officials will instead need to focus on more targeted approaches, such as the shutting down of bars and prioritizing the highest-risk activities. So, North Carolina currently still has its bar and nightclub uh, you know, restriction in place, They and gyms, fitness clubs, and stuff. They still can't open. Um, And this is the problem, is that when you are perceived to be treating one activity that is just as risky as another activity, but that other activity gets a pass, people see it, and now they reject or ignore anything you're saying. And that's where we are now in North Carolina. And in a lot of states across America, like this whole response has been completely screwed up because of the response from the local government officials who did not want to anger the demonstrations, all Right? did not want to anger the protesters. They didn't want to be canceled by this leftist fascist mob that uh, we've created in our society with participation trophies and cry closets and trigger warnings microaggressions and critical race theory but there's some good news let me get to this first because you're probably not going to hear this in a lot of places the cdc um, updated some of its data on friday and it actually now estimates that there are about 20 million coronavirus cases in america that's like 10 times all right, so here's Clay Travis writing out. Outkick the Coverage. He says, Coronavirus data has been, in a word, maddening since the initial outbreak began in China. Beginning with the initial reports from the WHO and the Chinese, it's been very hard for the average person to know what is the truth and what is fiction. Hopefully, this is beginning to change. On Friday, in a story that got like virtually no media coverage— The CDC released its latest data on the prevalence of the coronavirus in the country, and the results are pretty eye-opening, he says, especially for those who haven't been paying much attention to the antibody studies around America. The CDC now estimates there are 10 times as many cases in the U.S. as our testing has uncovered. So... Instead of about 2.6 million cases in the country, there have actually been 26 million cases in the country. That's actually really good news. That's really good news. So, why is this significant? Well, he says it means nearly one in every 10 Americans has already had the virus. That's a pretty gigantic finding it also means that many of these infected people had such mild cases that they felt no need to get treatment in fact it probably means the majority of the people who have had the virus never even knew that they had it he says uh it also means and this is probably the most significant data point that the coronavirus is actually far less deadly than we've been led to believe In fact, the CDC study suggests that all age death rate, the all age death rate from the virus is roughly 0.5%. And that means 99.5% of all the people infected with the virus, regardless of age, recover. Now, there are other studies that suggest that the 0.5% death rate is still way too high, but even so, it is still pretty significant that the virus has a 99.5% recovery rate per the CDC. He says, look, the media is in the middle of a second wave of fear porn. I call it panic porn over increased cases in Florida and Texas and Arizona, among the other states. But it remains to be seen whether these cases, which are mostly in people in their twenties and thirties, as opposed to people in their sixties, right? We don't know if this is going to translate into an increased death count because deaths are a lagging factor. So, right, because it takes so long uh, when you're in the hospital to recover from COVID, if you require hospitalization, um, you you, you could be in the hospital for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and then die. And so it's a, it's, this is a lagging factor. Okay. But even so, Florida actually just posted over the weekend, its lowest death total in eight weeks. The nation as a whole posted its lowest Saturday death toll since March 21st. So the number of deaths is declining, right? That's going down. While at the same time, we're seeing the cases spike. We don't know because, again, a lagging factor. We're going to have to wait and see if all of these young people uh, start dying in the at the same proportionate rate as the older people with comorbidities in nursing homes. I doubt that's going to happen. I think that virtually all of these young people that uh, went out and became super spreader event attendees, uh, I think they're probably going to uh, to get the virus. They're going some of them will require hospitalization, but for the most part, they will recover. And I think that the virus is probably way more prevalent. Considering these numbers, it's probably way more prevalent than uh, than we thought was possible at this stage, and that was due to. The demonstrations, right? I mean, like that's, you want to talk about, because think about it, all it takes, if you've got a thousand people marching and 10 of them have the virus and they infect two people a piece, now, now you've got 30 people and uh, they all take it home. They go back to their jobs or whatever. Now they're spreading it. And because they're young and they're asymptomatic, they don't even know they have it. And do you think that the people who went to one march or rally, were they only going to one march or rally? No, they went to many marches and rallies, many of them. Yeah. And so this the, the I think those are the super spreader events, much like the subway in New York City uh, and, uh, you know, the, the nursing home uh, outbreaks as well. So we'll see. Maybe I don't know. Maybe North Carolina officials will talk about it at their next press briefing. It's been. Gosh, I don't know. Five days since they did one, but well, yeah, I, yeah. It's so it's been it's been kind of tricky because since the last time they went before reporters, um, you've now had people come out like Congressman Greg Murphy that we played audio on yesterday's podcast. They've now come out uh, and said that like there's a really big problem that North Carolina is uh, the way it's doing its response. Particularly with nursing homes, I think there may be some question about some of this. There's also a big fight right now about some uh, uh, transparency bill that the General Assembly ran for the governor. The DHHS asked the asked the state legislature to do a bill that restricted access to some medical records or something. And so the media got all upset about it. And now they've uh, they sort of, you know, uh, whipped off uh, whipped up the, the the Black Lives Matter mob to go after the lawmakers and the governor on on this legislation. They had a big camp out at the mansion last night. Don't you sign this bill? Veto that bill, which is funny because, like, that's the governor's bill. They, they asked for it. They asked the legislature for this bill to. The legislature did it, and now these lefties are out there like, don't sign the bill. He asked for it. He's in a no-win spot on this. I know, I know, I shouldn't laugh. But politically, he's in a no-win situation right here. What does he do? Does he sign the bill that he asked for and get them mad at him? Or does he not sign the bill that he asked for? (laughs) Well, yeah, he'll probably do that. But I don't know. I should not make a prediction on this. But I will say, if he does, you know that part of the calculation, if he doesn't sign the bill, I should say, if he vetoes this bill, you know that he's going to get some cover from his allies in the media, right? Because even, like, I'm reading the stories today, and, and like none of them are mentioning. Well, one did. One mentioned. But all of the rest are not even mentioning that it was at his request that the bill get run. Anyway, Victor David Hansen, speaking of all of these uh, protests, Victor David Hansen, was writing at uh, American Greatness, amgreatness.com, in a piece called Class Not Race Divides America. Nothing is stranger in these tense days, he says, than the monotony of the inexact and nondescriptive mantra of white privilege and white solidarity, as if there is some monolithic white block, or as if class matters not at all. In truth, The clingers, the deplorables, the irredeemables, and Joe Biden's, you know, dregs, uh, all of these people that are spoken of in these terms by Democrats, they have very little in common with those who so libel them. But superficially, they share supposedly omnipotent and similar skin color, right? This is, by the way, part of the the very root of this white privilege, white fragility stuff, which we're going to get into here, um, is it's racism. That's what it is. It's racism. So, all right, hang on. In the past, he says, we saw tensions among so-called whites and CNN's reporting of the allegedly toothless rubes at the Trump rallies. Remember the text messages between Strzok and Page about Walmart's smelly patrons? The callous disregard for the five-decade wasting away of the American industrial heartland? Uh, The... The permissible elite collective disparagement of Christian evangelicals, and in the anthropological curiosity and sorry, condescension towards such exotic and presumably backward duck dynasty and NASCAR peoples. <laughs> right? Oh, look at these people. They enjoy hunting, do they? And look at their beards. They're so long, and they wear camouflage all the time. They watch. They watch cars go around a track. As a result, we have reached the surreal point at which the nation's privileged whites on campuses such as Harvard and Yale and Stanford uh, in the top echelon of politics and the corporate and entertainment worlds all deplore in the abstract something that they call white privilege in other people, of course, who have never really experienced it, right? Like this idea that like you're telling like these lefty white people are telling conservatives like poor rural folk that are white that they have white privilege and that's a that's pretty offensive (laughs) to a white person who grew up with a dirt floor you know that can be a little offensive of course whatever such a thing is they possess it in abundance but give no hint that they have any intention of giving it up other than rhetorically or through the medieval concept of hair shirt penance and twitter confessionals on the other hand They are furious that middle-class whites do not join their theatrics of bending the knee and offering abject apologies for original sins. Progressive, affluent whites run most of the blue states that oversee the big blue cities who hire the liberal police chiefs and their unionized officers. So how strange it is for liberal elite white people to demand supposed white privilege for the logical sins of their own ideology and governance, right? They're damning themselves. The hollowed-out Rust Belt, Appalachia, throughout California's foothills in the Central Valley, in the rural South, wherever they may be, whatever these areas may be, they are not the beneficiaries at birth of any intrinsic advantage. They certainly did not enjoy the affirmative action of the white elite defined by, or defined by familial networks, of like professionals and alumni influence and money and quid pro quo interning and incestuous leveraging and the good old boy favoring, like all of these types of uh, privileges that the elites enjoy, right? This is the two Americas, right? This is the other, uh, the, you, you get a peek behind the curtain. I, I mentioned it uh, the other day, I'll mention it again, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And he talked about how uh, you know he grew up poor, North, uh, the, the northern Appalachia up towards the, the Ohio area, Kentucky border. And when he got out of high school, went to the military, joined the Marines. After he was done with that, he then went for a scholarship at Yale and got in, I think it was Yale, um, yeah, Yale Law School and became an attorney. First one in his family to ever go to college, let alone, you know, uh, beyond that. Um, he becomes an attorney, but his exposure to that, that, elite atmosphere and all of the people that would help you along the way once you got into the quote right school right like once you were there and it's pretty amazing because I guess there are so many people that want to go to these schools uh, that they they actually interview everybody. And there were like all these like chaperones or like Sherpas that come along and they're like, oh, OK, well, I'm a graduate. I'm part of the Harvard Alumni mm-hmm. Association. So I will I will coach you on how to get through this process. And meanwhile, they're interviewing you and seeing if you pass muster and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, there's and then like once you get there, it's one of the things that uh, was it Justice Scalia was big about was not uh, bringing in. Supreme Court interns from all of the, you know, the major prestigious schools. He would try to find kids from other law schools because they deserve a chance too. He thought um, the white underclass. Victor David Hanson said the white underclass lives, schools, and works among other races. The overclass, not so much. As a result, in our increasingly polarized racial society, the white overclasses have constructed a psychological edifice to contextualize the paradox of their own de facto racial apartheid and segregation, right? You hear this manifested in comments about like, oh, where does the president send their kids to school, right? Was it Sidwell and Friends, right? Exclusive and pretty white school in Washington, D.C. One reason that many African Americans are often suspicious of white liberal elites is that they sense their apologetics serve as cheap penance for their apartheid lives of privilege. One of the reasons that the left and the Democratic Party Feared and hated the Trump movement was its emphasis on class rather than race. A more fluid and potentially more dynamic appeal and one with the potential to unite rather than divide those of different tribes. You've heard me talk about this, uh, when it comes to cultural Marxism. Right. Cultural Marxism, all Marxism requires class warfare. It has to have the white hats and the black hats. you got to have good guys and bad guys. It's constant revolution, constantly tearing down iconoclasm, tearing down of institutions. Right. So how do you do that if you are in a society where class is so permeable, where people can move? From the lower class to the upper class to the middle class back up to the upper class and then lose it all go back to the the underclass like you can move in all of these different classes and everybody recognizes this to some extent now they may be difficult and they think oh it's a pipe dream for me but if you believe in the dream and you work hard and play by the rules right treat people right you'll get ahead all of that the the, the American ethic or the Protestant ethic. Um, so. Everybody sort of understands those concepts. And so this is why Marxism as an economic argument didn't really work very well in America because it required class warfare for its revolution. Um, This whole eat the rich thing, that is not a mentality that has traditionally been shared by a majority of Americans because Americans want to be rich themselves. <laughs> I mean, you have a great idea, you apply yourself, you too can be rich. Okay, so this is what cultural Marxism is now. It is, let's take out the class component and let's make it about race. And this is what he's talking about here, that Democrats sense this, they knew this when Trump comes along and he talks to people as if they are all the same, white and black, it doesn't matter. It's about the American greatness, right? It's about uh, uh, lifting yourself up and you know applying yourself and and uh, becoming wealthy. The, anybody can do it. It's the American dream, right? This is sort of the idea that shatters the argument of class, Marxism, class uh, warfare. So let's make it about race. Let's make it about race, right? Now, what do you do to prove that you're not the thing that they say you are? And that they're willing to go to you know revolution over, because that's what's happening, right? This is all the tearing down of our institutions, the remaking of America, Black Lives Matter, their, their leadership. They are Marxists, like self-proclaimed. You can find the interviews. They talk about it openly. They are proud to be cultural Marxists. The racial divide, he says, the racial divide will not be healed by black separatist tribalism. It will not be bridged by the white apartheid guilt of the well-off. It certainly will not end by this absurd medievalism of affluent, sequestered, well-meaning white progressives championing black causes uh, in ways that are loud and public but ultimately selfish. The next time we hear a lecture about caring from a woke Yale professor or a sermon on systemic racism from a CEO or more Hollywood confessional video drivel— we should pause and politely ask, quote, but where do your children go to school? Why do you live where you live and dine with whom you dine? Then remember, class, not race, is what divides America, right? The truth that the upscale white progressives dare not utter. People want to be able to move up into another class. And the people who are in that class, I kind of suspect that they don't want entry to be so wide open just an idea there's a piece also from the claremont institute it's a conservative think tank this is um, at the website the american mind and it's a piece by thomas klingenstein and ryan williams Uh, i think let's see here yeah klingenstein is the chairman and williams is the president of the claremont institute and their piece is called america is not racist which is a pretty bold assertion in today's day and age. They put out a statement that said, America is not a racist country. America is a country that has strived imperfectly, but passionately to live up to its founding promise that all men are created equal. There is not and will never be a great barrier to racism or to tyranny in any form than this American idea. There is not and will never be a greater barrier to racism or to tyranny than this American idea. Why is it that so many of our citizens believe that America is racist to its core? Because this lie has been preached by our universities and media like the gospel for a generation. From there, it has traveled throughout society, particularly among the elites. Even most leaders on the right are unwilling to refute this destructive untruth, and in failing to do so, they promote the falsehood the riots that it has engendered, and ultimately America's destruction. This is to say, the riots are the handiwork of the elites. A country that has been taught that it is ignoble will not defend itself against its enemies, domestic or foreign. As we see written in flames in these riots and here in all of the commentary on them, the great divide in America is between those who believe that America is evil and needs to be destroyed, and those who believe that America is good and needs to be preserved. A version of that question is what the 2016 elections were about, and it's what the 2020 election will be about. Fundamentally, the lies that have been the core curriculum of American education must be replaced with the truth. The only way America can survive is a united country dedicated to living out the true meaning of its creed. I've said this before. I'm, I really am hoping that... At some point, the left realizes that the smallest minority is the individual. This is a very Ayn Rand thing to say. I understand that. Um, but if you protect individual rights, you protect the rights of the group. And uh, I suspect that there are a lot of people that don't, that don't know any other way of thinking on this critical race theory stuff. Because does a fish know it's wet, right? It's just the environment that they were raised in because conservatives gave up control of the education system, the academy, um, and to a large extent, government and Hollywood, right? They, they they seeded the field, not seeded it with like seeds. That's what the left was doing, right? Right. There is a reason why all collectives, uh, collectivist ideologies, when uh, you listen to the people who espouse them and lead these movements over the course of history, um, there is a reason why they always target the same group for their, uh, for their armies to fill out the ranks. And it's always the youth. Always. Why? Because they're impressionable. Right? You can teach them, quote-unquote, whatever you want. <laughs> you can tell them whatever you want. And they'll believe it. For the most part, they'll believe it. And then you can activate them. And they have very little um, uh, understanding of, of risk, of bodily harm, of long-term risk, reputational risk. Right, You can get them motivated and activated to be your shock troops. And that's why, historically speaking, they always fill out the ranks for these types of uh, armies. And that's what we're seeing now. It's no different. It's no different. Um, This week, we're going to get into this concept of white fragility as well. Matt Taibbi had a fantastic write-up on it, white fragility. So that's this week, but that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, check out the description for all of the most helpful links you will ever find in your life. Also at thepetecallendershow.com. So you can go to that website. You can find all of the links. And hey, consider becoming a patron of the program and get exclusive content. Thanks so much for your support. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.